I saw Joyce earlier. Where's Joyce? Here's jo- Hi, Joyce. Today you are called Rejoice uh, after uh, that great news. Yeah, you can, you can celebrate. That's wonderful news. We're excited for you and um, excited for Jimmy and uh, Harley and just praise the Lord for uh, his care. Years ago, um, a mentor of mine, Mike Cope, um, was spending some time with, with uh, several of us at in the Harding University days. And he was speaking to a, a few of us who were dreaming, planning on going into ministry. Uh, several of us, in fact, were a part of the mission team that would eventually move to Uganda. And Mike said... If you want to connect with people week in and week out, um, you will always connect with somebody on any given Sunday if you preach if you preach to the hurting. Because in any gathering, you're going to have people who enter and sit down and they're hurting perhaps from something that's recent over the weekend, perhaps it's something from the week, perhaps it's months, even years of hurting. So when you preach the hurting, you always have something to say. You always have good news to speak into their lives. And uh, we rejoice with Joyce and her family. At the same time, there are people that have been praying for healing, Uh, for rescue, for breakthrough, and you have not seen it yet. And perhaps you carry the unanswered prayer into this place with you today, and you're hurting. Uh, You might be asking yourself now, Darren, isn't this a season of Thanksgiving? Isn't this supposed to be a celebration season? Why are you wanting to, to address hurting and suffering? It is a season of celebration, and what I want to do today is, is talk about ways that we see hurting and suffering expressed in Scripture in a couple of places in the Old Testament as we stay with our series, Believing in God, stories of faith from the Old Testament. And we're going to tie that and move today towards Incarnation. And as we do this, you may not be directly experiencing any kind of hurt or suffering today, but you've experienced it before and you know people, perhaps someone even next to you in the pew today, who is in a place of hurting, who is in a place of suffering. There are two uh, acknowledgments I want to make first. Uh, One is to Randy. Uh, Because while today we had Psalm 42 and then the song that immediately followed that psalm, Deep Calls to Deep, Randy includes songs like that and scripture readings like that even on a day when suffering is not the theme of a sermon. I think that is absolutely uh, critical to the life of a church family. Because 
of the truth we've just already acknowledged that on any given Sunday, some of us, perhaps even many of us, come into this gathering with hurt and with suffering. And um, it is very easy in evangelical Christianity for us to have uh, to focus so much on the, the triumph of resurrection and the triumph of the good news of God, and we celebrate that and we hold on to that. But in the midst of us, in the midst of that, we can sometimes forget the brokenness and the suffering that is present in the world and present in our own lives, in the lives of people around us. And sometimes people come in here into a gathering, and they they you can't even get the words out. It's difficult for you to sing the songs. It's even like the Book of Lamentations when the 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 writer is expressing what so many people felt in that period when Lamentations was written during the exile as they're in Babylon thinking about the days of their time in Jerusalem and in Judah, how they've been carried away, how they've been made slaves, how they have once again been taken away from their place. And it it appears that they've even been taken away from God and the songs that they used to sing The songs that they sang in Zion are difficult to sing for them at that time. And some of you come into this place and it's difficult for you to sing the song of triumph at times. And we need those songs to be sung. We need them to be present. We need these psalms even on days when the sermon theme is not specifically about suffering. So I'm thankful that Randy includes those kinds of songs and scriptures. The second acknowledgement I want to make is to uh, Gary Parnell. Gary, a few weeks ago in our Wednesday night service, uh, as we were doing the series Stories of Faith, and people were sharing a variety of things, Gary shared uh, a, a season. He shared with us a season of loss that he and Jennifer and their family have experienced. It started with a season of loss that... Uh, we all experienced in the loss of Bill Hammett a few years ago. The next year, after losing Bill, and they shared life group together, and the next year, Gary uh, lost his father. And then last year, they lost Jennifer's mother. So three significant losses back to back to back years. And in fact, Gary even shared with us that night that he uh, turned to Jennifer at some point and, and or sometime this year and said, uh, I wonder who we're going to lose this year. Because we can come to that place when the season is so difficult, uh, the season of suffering that we ourselves are experiencing or people whom we love are experiencing. And we wonder how long will that season last? And as a part of his sharing with us, I was uh, so grateful for the way that Gary shared in that, in that evening. And one of the things that he did that impacted me, and I know those of us who were a part of that evening, was he shared the song. It's on Hillsong Worship's Christmas album called The Peace Project. And he shared with us a song called Seasons. I remember him specifically mentioning this song last year to me at Christmas. And uh, we're going to take a few moments 
and we're going to uh, just listen to this song. There are parts of this song that are a little hard to understand, so the words will be projected. And I'd like to ask if we can uh, just turn the lights off. We'll just have the screens and our Christmas lights as we uh, listen to this song and follow along with these words uh, that remind us about the season of winter and remind us of the hope that we have in Jesus. And then we'll come back and put some things together today from Scripture.
I believe that we have psalms that speak of similar kinds of things, seasons. David says in Psalm 13, verse 1, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Is his response. And then we have the sons of Korah in Psalm 42, the psalm that we saw on the video today. My tears have been my food. My tears have been my food. Day and night while people say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Like the frost on a rose, winter comes for us all. And David knows that. David writes a lot of the psalms that are psalms of praise and psalms of thanksgiving. But he writes many of the laments as well. When you read through the sons of Korah and the psalms that they've written, they have lament and they have praise and they have thanksgiving. And of course, throughout the psalms of lament and thanks and and praise are psalms of request, petition. But we're reminded, once again, just as we were a few weeks ago, that lament is faith. To lament to a God who you believe is hearing your prayer is an act of faith itself. To cry out, how long, O Lord? is to say, God, I know you to be this kind of God who loves and is powerful and can step in in a moment and do something about this. You can change this circumstance. You can change this person. You can change this world. You can change this community. You can change this church. You can change this thing inside of me. You can change this body. How long, O Lord? It's a recognition that winter comes for us all. And so David is acting in faith to write this lament. And then you'll notice in the psalm, in Psalm 42, that one of the things that David does is he praises the Lord and he even recalls these times of worship. Lament is an act of faith, it's also an act of worship. It's a way for him to give to God glory and praise in the midst of the circumstance that he's facing, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the questions, how long, O Lord? And the worship reorients David. Listen to these words from Psalm 42 once again. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. So as he suffers, he remembers those good days. He remembers when he's gone before. I remember those days because those were the days that we went with the festive throng. We went as celebrants and we praised the Lord for his deliverance. We praised God for the victories that he's given us. So then he asks in verse 5, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? You know who God is. You've seen him work before. Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. 
But then he repeats this refrain, my soul is downcast within me. Therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. All of these places that God has stepped in to act. Then down in verse 8, he says, By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And what David does here is he remembers the character of God. And in remembering the character and action of God in worship, he is filled with hope. The hope is restored when he goes, okay, this is God, this is who he is, this is who he was, this is who I know him to be, this is what he's done before, so I'm going to put my hope in that God. We don't have confidence in our ability to figure things out in order to get ourselves out of suffering. Our confidence is not in our ability. If it is, we've fallen short enough to take away that confidence to pull the rug from underneath us. We don't have confidence that things are just going to fall into place, that they're just going to come together haphazardly, that there's some kind of fate that's out there. We don't believe that. We don't have confidence because of our own ability to hold our lives together. Haven't we tried this before? To hold our own lives together? We have confidence because God is God. We have confidence because God is faithful. God is loving. And these are the things that David, or that the sons of Korah, remember in this psalm. And then there's Job. Job, in chapter 7, verse 4, we talked about him a few weeks ago, the suffering that he endured. How he, his life is, is, is picturesque. It's, one of, it's a Norman Rockwell painting on Thanksgiving Day. His family gathered around. He's got family. He's got things. He's got stuff. The turkey is plump and ready to be carved. That's what Job had. It's the life he experienced. Things were good. Life was settled. There was peace in his home. There was joy. There was celebration. He was righteous. So righteous that not only did he offer sacrifices to God on on his own behalf, but just in case his kids had messed up, he offered sacrifices to God to cover them. He was righteous. But everything gets taken away in a day, it seems. His cattle and his camels, his donkeys, those are gone. There's been a raiding party that's come in and killed his family. He and his wife are left. She encourages him to curse God. He, he won't do it. It's God who gives. It's the Lord who takes away. And then his health goes. And even in his suffering, the boils that are covering his body, he, he won't curse God. And even with friends surrounding him throughout the story through the book of Job, Job wrestles with God. And while he doesn't curse him, he has some choice words for God. Listen to what Job says in chapter 7, verse 4. When I lie down, I think, how long before I get up? The night drags on, and I toss and turn until dawn. 
and you thought you were the only one who said, 2.30 in the morning, what is it doing? Okay, I'm going back to sleep, 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 sleep. It doesn't come. How long will the night drag on? Remember, O oh God, that my life is but a breath. My eyes will never see happiness again. Haven't there been times when we felt that, that we felt like, okay, maybe this is the new normal? And perhaps it is. Perhaps that new normal for you was something that you just hoped and prayed before and your life would never happen and now it's happened and here you are in a new normal. And there are times that, that that's not the new normal, but we're so entrenched in some suffering that we go, I, I think all my days of happiness are gone. I don't think there's anything else left for me. This is what Job is saying. He says in verse 11, Therefore I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Job's descriptions sound similar to the cries that we ourselves have uttered, or at least those thoughts that we have hurled at God in the middle of the night. Not for others to hear, just us and God. We are hesitant to be angry at God, and oftentimes for good reason. We can certainly sin against Him in those ways, not always. Sometimes, as Job shows us, and as the Psalms of Lament show us, we're able to throw our anger, we're able to throw our doubt at His feet. He's God. He can handle it. Job might also sing, like the frost on a rose, winter comes for us all. Then there's Job chapter 19, verse 6. Know that God has wronged me. He's gotten to the point in the conversations with his friends as they are trying to encourage him to repent. Obviously, you've done something wrong. That's why you're in this terrible situation. If you'll just repent of the wrong, then God will restore your fortunes. And he says, God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there's no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. So what Job has done here is he's taken his condition and now he's thrown all the blame on God. God is the one who's behind it. God has wronged me. And Job takes over as the judge of the only true judge. Job begins to judge God. Here's the standard, God. I lived up to it. You are not keeping your end of the bargain. This is how Job feels. In the face of Job's suffering, his friends call him to repent, and he says, I'm innocent. And essentially, in this passage, he's saying, I'm not wrong. God is wrong. Job is, in a sense, calling on God to repent. His friends say, Job, just repent. And he goes, you know, he's the one who ought to repent. This is what's happening. This is the place he's landed. And of course, at the end of the book, after all of the, the blustery talk from Job and his friends, God shows up in chapter 38. And when he shows up and he questions Job, Job stands there in silence. And at the end of God's speech, Job simply says, I repent. I repent. 
confronted with God, he has learned his place. Job's questions about why the suffering happened, not answered. He's not given an explanation. Well, you see, here's what happened. One day I was in heaven, and the Satan came along with these other beings, and he doesn't explain anything. He doesn't tell him the background story. He doesn't say, you know, I had so much confidence in you, Job. I knew you were faithful. I had so much confidence in you. I knew that you could handle this. He doesn't even give him that. He just talks to him about a world that Job doesn't understand. He talks to him about a life that is, in its totality, incomprehensible to Job and to any other human being. Because remember, we know the backstory that Job doesn't hear, that God was bragging on Job. And so we look at this and we think about what Job is facing here as God has come to him. No explanation. He never addresses Job's claims about how his suffering had been unfair, at least in Job's eyes, and undeserved. But in the story of Job, in my, just my opinion, the question of the book is not, why do the innocent suffer? This is oftentimes seen as kind of the the reason behind the book, that this is answering that question, why do the innocent suffer? There's really no explanation for a why. I don't think this is what the book is about. I think, rather, the book is is answering a different kind of question. When the innocent suffer, when the innocent suffer, will they remain faithful to God? More simply put, the question is, Will you serve God for nothing? Will you serve God for nothing? This is what Job is faced with. The suffering doesn't leave. He doesn't know if the suffering will ever end. He doesn't know he's going to get repaid and then some at the end of the story. He's in the midst of his suffering. And the question is, will he serve God for nothing? That's the question that the Satan, the accuser, wanted to know. Yeah, he'll serve you. He'll be faithful as long as you give him all these things. Will you serve God for nothing? In the midst of our suffering experience, suffering perhaps brought on into our lives on our own account. Choices we've made, behaviors that we've had, thought processes that have been become entrenched and become bitter or addictive. And perhaps we've brought a lot of suffering on ourselves, but oftentimes we don't ask for the suffering. It just happens. It happens directly to us or it happens to someone we love. And we would love anything to be able to give up something else so that they would not have to suffer. Enough of us as parents or even grandparents would say, I would rather take that suffering onto myself so that they could be free of the suffering. How many parents have thought that before? You've thought that. I would take the suffering from my own child. Will we serve God for nothing? We're reminded that our circumstances don't change God's character. 
Our circumstances don't change his character, and that's what many of us are tempted to, to do. That's what Job was tempted to do for sure. That when faced with suffering, when faced with pain, we begin to question the very character of God. And a couple of weeks ago, as we were in talking about the silence of God, those times of unanswered prayer, where it seems that God is silent, where it seems that God is distant, his character hasn't changed. And the love of God and the generosity of God, the abundance of God, the grace of God, the faithfulness of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God, all of those are present in God and they're always present. He is all of those things all the time. And my circumstances don't change any of those things about him. My hardship doesn't change his faithfulness and his generosity and his grace and his love. It doesn't change his compassion. So even though our circumstances don't change God's character, God can use our circumstances to change ours. God can say, as the one whose character does not change, I can come into you in a special way and do some things in you in this experience that will change you, transform you, shape more of the image of Jesus in you, bring more of the glory of God in you. Like a seed in the snow, I've been buried to grow. Now, that's good news for us, that God could change us in the midst of our suffering, but there's more good news. And the good news to me comes in this time of remembering the incarnation, the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ. Thank you for that reminder, Kathy. We believe in God. We hold on to the Lord in faith in the midst of suffering because of the good news of Christ. In Christ, God has shown us that he will not simply watch the suffering of the world, but he will enter the suffering of the world. He won't just watch it from a distance, but avoid it. He gets into the very suffering of the world compassionate. We hold on to God only because He first took hold of us. Took hold of our flesh and bone and blood and He took hold of our suffering. Being held up in the midst of suffering is not because we are so strong but because God is so strong and because He has already come and experienced the suffering with us. He didn't just look at us with compassion from a distance, but he got into the suffering itself. Athanasius was a 4th century theologian and church leader. We owe a lot of what we would call Orthodox Christianity to the writings of Athanasius as he battled some heresy of that time. And he says this about the incarnation of Jesus. Some may ask, why did he not manifest himself by means of of other and nobler parts of creation, such as sun or moon or stars or fire or air, instead of a mere man? The answer is this. The Lord did not come to make a display. He came to heal and to teach suffering people. For one who wanted to make a display, the thing would have been just to appear and dazzle the beholders. But for him who came to heal and to teach, 
the way was not merely to dwell here, but to put himself at the disposal of those who needed him. Athanasius is saying, and this was his response to people saying that he didn't really come as a man. He wasn't really God and, and human at the same time. And he's answering that and saying, here's one of the reasons why he came. It may not make sense from a Greek standpoint, from a wisdom standpoint, but this is why he came. He came so that he could be a part of the suffering of the world. The good news is that Jesus, the eternal word of God from creation, has become flesh. This means that in Christ, God entered our suffering. He gets into a body, weak, fragile, susceptible to death. And in his birth and his life and his death, Jesus suffers with and for our broken world. We sometimes remember the suffering for the broken world. We don't always remember the suffering with the broken world, suffering with our own suffering. I like the way that Greg Boyd, uh, who's pastor and theologian and author, most recently author of The Crucifixion of the Warrior God, I like the way he puts it when he talks about God's consistent interaction with people from, all, from back in the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament. When he says, God is not above stooping down to where we are to show solidarity with us and to continue to show his purposes through us. God stooping down, meeting us where we are, meeting humanity where we are. This is what the incarnation does. It's what the cross does. He takes upon himself the sin and the suffering and the brokenness and the violence and the frailty of humanity. He takes it onto himself. In Christ, both his incarnation and his crucifixion, God stoops down to where we are so that he can raise us up to where he is. This is what God has done in Christ by sending him to come. My brother, Scott, who lives in central Arkansas, uh, back in July, had uh, what appeared to be a mini-stroke. And um, there was some communication issues uh, in in the care he was getting, and he ended up having a major stroke a little bit later on. And uh, so it, it had impacted the, the left side of his body. Um, he, his hand is, is curled. He wears a, a kind of a mold so that it keeps his hands straight out. And the idea is that through therapy and over time, his hand will straighten out and he'll be able to use it. Uh, he can't use his left leg, so he's used a walker. My brother Scott is 46 years old and just before this happened in the middle of July, he had run uh, 20 miles, he was going to the gym five times a day, he was in good condition, probably some of the better condition of his life, and then this hits. He's had other strange kinds of sicknesses through his life, but this is one that didn't just come and go, as others in the past have. And he found out a few weeks ago, after a nerve biopsy, which was in itself uh, very painful 
uh, that he has a, um, a nerve condition that uh, is incurable. And so the uh, doctor was telling him last week, he said, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know if I'll tell you that you'll walk normally again, that you'll ever be able to run, that you'll be able to go do the normal things that you've done. I don't know what to tell you. It, you might have, uh, it might straighten out, it might not. There's, this is the, this person, this doctor had been practicing uh, for 35 years in Arkansas, and he said, this is the first case I've seen or heard of with this. It's rare. My brother said, well, I'm a rare man. It was his way of kind of countering this pain. And uh, so now, four months in, he's, he's found out that this might be his new normal. This might be his, this might be his life. And he, uh, he texted me and said, While I have not received great news lately, I know that God has got me in this. The Bible says it in so many places. But he's also shown me so many times over the last four months that God has got me in this. So he hasn't received great news lately. But he believes the good news. He believes in a God who's come to suffer for him. He would be able to sing that, that refrain, Gary, like frost on a rose. Winter comes for us all. But there's more to that song. Listen to the bridge of the song from Seasons. I can see the promise. I can see the future. You're the God of seasons. I'm just in the winter. If all I know of harvest is that it's worth my patience, then if you're not done working, God, I'm not done waiting. You can see my promise even in the winter because you're the God of greatness even in a manger. For all I know of seasons is that you take your time. You could have saved us in a second. Instead, you sent a child. You could have saved us in a second. Couldn't God have just stood back from the suffering and said, boom, enough, done. And what God does instead is send Jesus, Jesus the Son, eternal Son, with God before creation, with God at creation. This Son of God comes, He becomes a fetus. He becomes an infant, helpless, in the hands of a teenage girl, His mother. He takes on this weak, frail, susceptible body and he surrenders himself to the suffering of this world, including the violence of this world, to the point of death. So even in the winter, God is at work and he's shown us this through Jesus. This is good news.
It brings us hope. So that as uh, you today perhaps sit in your own period of winter, you're reminded of hope. That God is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus has come to be with us, to take on the suffering, to be with you in the suffering, so he knows. It's why the Hebrew author says he's the great high priest. And even better, because he himself has suffered, he knows how to be with those who are suffering. It shouldn't be beyond us to pray as Jesus prayed. And so this week, as a soul training practice, let me encourage you to do a couple of things. One, like David and the sons of Korah and Job, acknowledge. Acknowledge to God, God, you don't revolve around me. I revolve around you. Pray like Jesus in the garden. The Jesus who was born in a manger without the dazzle. The Jesus who was born into the suffering of this world and took on the suffering of this world. Pray like Jesus in the garden. If it is possible, take this suffering from me. But, not what I want, but what you want. And maybe this week, that is your, those are your soul training practices. Acknowledging that you revolve around God and His world. He doesn't revolve around you and yours. And simply praying, God, not what I want, but what you want. Would you stand with me, please? And I'll invite our prayer teams to take their places. And as we sing this song, Living Hope, we will be reminded of the hope that we have in the midst of a world that is broken and suffering, in the midst of our own suffering. That we have got a God who's committed to our goodness, to our blessing, to our abundance, so much that He took on the suffering of the world so that you could experience His glory. If not this side of heaven, forever with Him. Let's sing about this living hope that we have.